If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black hardback uh, underneath the seat around you. Good to see all of you. Welcome to service this morning. Glad that you are here and have joined us. We'll be in Acts chapter 9 as we uh, continue on in our series through the book of Acts. So if you are new with us, we are marching through the book of Acts. Um, just taking it verse by verse, going through the book. And you have joined us as we start chapter 9 in what is one of the more famous stories and one of the more interesting stories in Acts and probably in all of the scriptures. And so uh, we will have a good time this morning looking at it. Before we get started, a couple of announcements. Uh, if you look at the back of your worship guide real fast here, um, please note on Saturday, July 21st, so in a couple weeks, we will be having a uh, bonanza of sorts here uh, in the lawn. Uh, so make plans for that. It'll be the afternoon of the 21st. We'll have food and drinks and uh, games for the kiddos. Uh, so put that on your calendar. We'll do that in the afternoon, early evening, so after the sun kind of hits us. Also, our first Elephant in the Room session was this past Monday. Uh, we had a great turnout and a great um, discussion uh, over the topic of abortion. So heads up, we will have a week off with that. We'll pick it back up on Monday, July 16th at 7.30, and we'll be hitting the topic of death penalty and war. Um, so we'll have two, like last time, two opposing presentations from the biblical viewpoint of maybe how Christians should view death penalty and war. Um, and so you're welcome to join us for that. That'll be again on July 16th. Okay, we'll be in Acts chapter 9 this morning. Um, and we are in the middle of a series of stories that Luke is telling us in Acts about people converting to um, Christianity, people converting to believing uh, in and following Jesus. And so we have read the story of the Sumerians converting and um, Simon the Magician. And then last week, the Ethiopian eunuch converting with Philip, and then today we'll see one of the more um, exceptional conversions uh, in the New Testament. So we'll pick it up in chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Okay, now we've met the character Saul a couple times here in the book of Acts. He was there when Stephen was stoned. Okay, so when Stephen was killed, the first Christian martyr, Saul was there approving. Then later on, we're told that Saul was leading kind of the persecution against the apostles. Now he's gotten orders, he's gotten permission to head to Damascus to kill more Christians, men and women, okay, who they called um, people who belonged to the way, which is interesting that the early Christianity wasn't as much defined by belief as by practice, as by a way of living, a way of, of living as God's redeemed people. Um, so he's on his way to Damascus to persecute the Christians, the, the people who belong to the way. Now, um, there's going to be a change in plans as he's on his way, so let's keep reading. Verse 3, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now we'll come back to this question because I think it's a haunting question in verse 4. Jesus shows up to Paul and says, why are you persecuting me? Notice the solidarity that Jesus takes with the disciples being persecuted. Paul, I think, rightly asks, um, I'm not, right? Who are you? I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting these, these Christians. But Jesus shows up, the resurrected Christ, he shows up to Paul and says, hey, why are you after me? Why are you hunting me down? He knocks Saul on his back. And then the men who were traveling with him, verse 7, stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. 
So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Okay, this is the only story in Acts we are told about this guy named Ananias. Um, This is a pretty humorous one. You'll see, we've seen before God giving directions to some of the disciples that did not sound like good ideas. Ananias gets a big one here. The Lord says to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So Ananias goes, let's make sure we have the same guy. Okay, God, you want me to go find the guy who came here to kill all of us. Okay, let's do it. That's, we're on the same page. I didn't mishear you. Okay. And so God gives him that order. Ananias faithfully obeys. The Lord says to him, go. He's a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. There's a lot of irony happening in the story. Um, first, Paul is persecuting the Christians, and now he's going to learn that he's going to have to suffer for Christ's name. Um, you have Ananias, um, unlike the other disciples running away from Saul, is told to go find him, to go pursue him. You have Paul, um, or Saul, who, who will later be called Paul, who is the greatest persecutor of Christianity who will then become one of the greatest missionaries of Christianity, who, again, is this chosen instrument to spread the gospel. Just a lot of, a lot of irony and, and humor happening here. So Ananias, verse 17, departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Here we see it, the greatest persecutor, the number one public enemy of the faith, has now been met square on with the power of God and the power of the gospel, and is now doing what? Preaching and proclaiming. He's been completely transformed. Verse 23, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. They're like, look, we know this guy. I don't care what he tells you. This is a sting operation, all right? Don't trust this man. But Barnabas brought him. Okay, so Barnabas is just a hero throughout Acts. Barnabas comes on in, brings him to the apostles, and declares to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. 
So last week we saw with the Ethiopian eunuch, one of the strangest characters you can imagine to be converted. Right? This third gender African man who was a Gentile. And Philip meets him and he's converted. And now we get maybe even a stranger story. Number one public enemy against Christianity is now converted. And, and you have one of the more interesting aspects of Christianity throughout history, which is it has tended to take people who have, at times, very, very shady and questionable past and completely transform them. There seems to be a power. If you, I mean, again, if you just look historically throughout Christianity, for the gospel, for Christ to come to someone and completely flip them inside out. And we, we call it conversion. Someone who meets Christ and who is changed because of it. And so we, as Christians, we try to have this Damascus Road event, right? We try to have these conversion stories. We try to convert other people. Um, and I think one of the things we have to ask, particularly when we see the story with Paul, who, I mean, let's be honest, Paul is radically transformed. Paul goes from, again, killing Christians to being one of the more famous Christians really ever. One of the greatest missionaries takes the gospel to the Gentiles, will write about half of our New Testament. He meets Christ and is completely transformed. And the, the question that I would have is, and I, I wonder this in summertime, okay? In summertime, uh, I hear a lot of stories about youth camps. And so we take kids to youth camps and we get 50 decisions and we celebrate that we got decisions that people said a prayer or whatever and chose Christ. And then we kind of go off and are happy with ourselves, right? And I used to go speak at camps and stuff during the summer. I don't do that as much. So now I'm just kind of hearing the stories. And it kind of depressed me because here's what I know from knowing Christian youth. Most of those kids are not going to be changed the way that Paul was changed. They're not going to be transformed. They're, they're considered to be converted. But they haven't found really this life change, this transformation. We might even wonder, right, I mean, if they're really converted in the biblical sense of someone who meets Christ and goes away a new creation, a different person. And we, we have all these different conversion stories here in the book of Acts, and they're all very different. I mean, they all have different contingencies to them. There's different situations. Some are very miraculous, like Paul's. Some are very normal. Some are just kind of coincidental. An Ethiopian's reading in a chariot, and Philip happens to see him and come over and talk to him. But at the core, there's, there's these certain um, core characteristics. There are these patterns that appear over and over and over again as Christ meets someone and changes them, as they're converted as they're transformed. What I want to do this morning is look at the story of Saul being converted here and try to find those, those, those core patterns. What is it about somebody? What is it about an event? What is it about the situation that would take somebody and transform them? So the question maybe we're asking this morning as we look at the story would be, what happens when someone becomes a Christian? And what happens when someone is a Christian? What's the dynamic? What's the agency? What's the situation working there? And so we, we see Saul here. And Saul is a Pharisee, um, which means he's grown up in a Jewish worldview. He's advanced. Um, he's very high up in the Pharisee movement. Um, and he is worshiping the Jewish God, thinking that these Christians are a heretical sect. Okay, And so they deserve to be killed because we've got to keep purity um, for the Jewish religion. Now, notice when Saul is converted here, he's not converted because he doesn't know where he's going to end up when he dies. He doesn't know his eternal fate. And he's not converted because he has this, this sense inside of him that he's really just not good enough. 
that he's guilty. In fact, if you read later statements from Paul, it seems like he didn't really have a moral kind of problem. He thought he was pretty good when he was Pharisee. He followed the law. He says, I was blameless. That's as good as you can get. What transforms Saul, and I think it's an important cue for you and I, is meeting, is seeing, is being faced with the reality that Jesus had died and resurrected. This was the transformative event in Paul's life, was knowledge that God had done something in history through Jesus, and that everything now must be reconsidered in light of that event. I think sometimes we try to sell conversion again as, do you need forgiveness? Do you want forgiveness? We have very introspective consciences in the West. We, can, we think about our deeds. We think about if we're good enough. We think about how we compare to other people. And sometimes we, we, we sell that. And we say, well, if you believe this, you'll be forgiven. Or we, we sell a kind of a self-esteem conversion, which is you want to feel good about yourself. You want to know that you matter. And, and what we've seen, I think, throughout the last 20, 30, 40 years is that those conversions don't typically affect long-term change. What does affect change, though, is I think what happens to Saul here. Someone who's confronted with the reality of what God has done in history. What he's done through Jesus. So the resurrected Christ comes and meets Saul. Notice what Saul starts saying about Jesus shortly after he meets Christ. He says in verse 20, he's in the synagogue's preaching, he says, He is the Son of God. It's an interesting title he ascribes to Jesus here. Um, we could trace this title all the way back to Psalm chapter 2. In Psalm 2, you have this um, beautiful poem about God coming and fixing creation, redeeming, rescuing creation through his king. He sets up a king on his holy mountain. And the king in the course of the psalm, Psalm chapter 2, says, God has said to me, I am his son. He's my father. And so the Jewish people have this expectation that the son of God would come and he would rescue his people. He would rescue creation. The Romans, in fact, would call their kings, their emperors, the sons of God. To call Jesus the son of God would say that he's the king. He's the one who has come and rescued us. He's the one who has come and enacted God's salvation. In fact, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. If you look in verse 2 through verse 6, he says, God declared Jesus to be the son of God through his resurrection. He raised again from the dead, and that changed everything. That meant all things had to be reconsidered. I think that's the transformative event in someone's life. I think that's the thing that doesn't change that circumstances. If you decide to follow Jesus because you feel bad about yourself, what happens when you start feeling good about yourself? I'm sure we've all been there, right? Where we call out to God because we're really depressed and really in a bad situation. Then the situation gets better, and who suddenly do we not need anymore? Jesus. God. Or where we started following, we started pressing into God because of um, a circumstance in our life or whatever emotional need or, or tug we might have. Or whatever question might make sense to us. Whatever answer we might have for something. And then again throughout time, that, that kind of need or tug just kind of fades. But what we see throughout the course of Christian history, throughout the scriptures, is that the foundation for Christian faith, the reason why you and I should have faith and should believe and should follow, is because something has happened in the world. Something's happened through Jesus and it's continuing to happen through the Spirit. And when Saul sees that, when he's face to face with that reality, that Christ has died and has risen, his life starts to change. And it starts to change because if Jesus is the Son of God, if he is the Lord of Lords, if he is the true King, Christ, 
That means that all loyalty, all allegiance, all obedience is due to him. You see, a lot of us have been, I think, again, our sold Jesus on this notion that, well, let me, let's back up just a little bit. Let's do some history background, okay? Um, for the past few hundred years, most Westerners, the Enlightenment Project, has seen religion as a game with the goal being to end up on the right side of history, okay? So you're going to die, you're going to go one of two places, heaven or hell. Which one would you like to go to? Uh, heaven, please. Thank you. And the goal has been, what boxes do I need to check off to get to heaven, right? I mean, what is it that I need to do? And people will give you different answers. Or say a prayer, come down an aisle, um, live a good life, be a moral person, be a responsible family man, be perfect. I mean, there's all these different kind of variables. And, and what you need to do at that point is, right, check the boxes. So if it's say the prayer, you say the prayer, you get the certificate, you tape it to the front of your Bible, and you're good to go. There's not much incentive for anything more after that, Right? I mean, you could, you could be an overachiever, but if you've checked off the box, you've kind of checked off the box. And you have a hard time explaining men and women like Saul and like people sure that you, you know in your life who have been completely radically transformed. And they've been transformed because they've realized that the truth of the gospel, the truth of the good news about Jesus is that something real has happened in the world that's changed it. And that salvation life is now available here and now. That to say that Jesus is Lord implicitly means other things and people are not Lord. I think we've, we've lost that kind of edge to the gospel. That kind of sharpness to the gospel. To say again that Jesus is Lord, back in Paul's day, would be to explicitly say, who's not Lord? Caesar. You can't have two. If Jesus is king, he's not. In our day, to say that Jesus is Lord might be to say that materialism is not. Our self-worth is not. It, it severs other allegiances. It puts itself exclusively at the top. But there's a sharpness to it. And so we see this in, in Saul, in Paul. He, he understands that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the one who has come and redeemed humanity. He is the Lord of all creation. And, and Saul starts to reorient everything around this fact. And this is how you explain the rest of his letters. I mean, really, you could probably explain all of Paul's letters with this idea that he's trying to flesh out what it means to understand reality through the truth of the Father working through the Son and the Spirit. How should we view the law now that we know about Jesus and the Spirit? How should we view God now that we know about Jesus and the Spirit? How should we view our neighbors now that we know about Jesus and the Spirit? What do these truths mean for our lives? I think how a person is converted, what it means to become a Christian, and then to be a Christian is to see and encounter the resurrected Christ in such a way that it transforms all of your life, that your entire life is slowly but surely reoriented around the truths of the gospel, around who Jesus is, what he's done in the world, and what he is doing. Saul sees that, and his life is radically changed. He starts preaching, um, and, and really he develops a pattern that's going to go on for the rest of his life, which is preaching, converting, being very impressive, starting churches, and then moving on. I mean, his whole life is kind of sold out for who Jesus is. The question, I think, would be for us, have we had that encounter? And again, I think you've got to be careful here, because some of us look for a Damascus Road-like experience where you're knocked on your butt and you see a big light, you hear a voice, and then you go on and you're changed forever, right? That's not how it usually occurs. 
And I think part of the point that, that Luke gives us so many different stories is that there are lots of different ways which God does this. But, but have you, have I, have we encountered the risen Christ in such a way that it flips us inside out? In such a way that our entire world is now seen differently. Our actions are now different. Perhaps a question that I could pose to you this morning, a, a diagnostic question, if you will, would be this. Does your life make sense outside of the reality that Jesus is Lord? So could someone see your life, see the way that you live, see the decisions that you make, and not have to figure out what it is that allows that to be possible? And, and have that not fit inside of their worldview? Have that not fit inside of the rules that they're used to playing by? Um, we could do it like this. I teach uh, high schoolers um, and uh, Christian high schoolers since they've been brought up their whole life in the church. And what's interesting about them is that they're much like their parents, which is um, they claim to be Christians, but for the most part, their lives look exactly like the rest of the world. So their lives make sense without Jesus, right? You don't need Jesus to explain the actions that they, they, they do, to explain the lifestyles that they live. One of the ways it's true is in, in, in sexuality, and sexual ethics, okay? Um, the world treats sex in one way. Um, the Christian ethics laid out in the scriptures in a completely opposite way. And by and large, pretty much all the Christian youth I meet are over here in this camp, just like the world. You don't need Jesus to explain the way that they use their bodies, the way that they control their desires, that type of thing. Um, and the way I fleshed it out in the past... And I've got a couple of my high school here, so they can confirm this, this is how I do it, um, is, is by asking the question, what are we teaching our Christian youth about sexuality, about how they should view and handle sexual urges and desires and things of that nature? Well, by and large, we teach them the same exact thing that the world is taught, that, that those who don't have Christ here, which is risk-taking, okay? So if you have sex, you might have an unwanted pregnancy. If you have sex, you might get an STD, if you have sex, there might be emotional scarring, things of that nature. Now, the question that I would pose to them and would pose to you is, does that stop anybody ever at any time, any place in the world from having sex? No, it doesn't. That's risk-taking. And the payoff that you get from having sex is enough to roll the dice, right? If history has taught us anything, it's a, that is a decision humans will make. We will take the risk. Because we're sexual beings. That's something that we desire. That's something that we want. But when you come to the scriptures, the scriptures will lay out a way to treat sex and a way to use sex that's much different from that kind of viewpoint. A, a kind of viewing and using of sex, participating in it, that's very limited. That's very prudish and repressive. A way that doesn't make sense to the rest of the world. And when you go to Paul in Corinthians and he's explaining this to you, he doesn't say, well, did you know you could get pregnant? Did you know that there could be STDs that you could get? He says, well, hold up. Have you heard about this Jesus guy? There are real things that have happened with Jesus. And it's not a matter of risk-taking. It's a matter of truth. Either you believe you're united with Christ and certain things are not available to you anymore, or you don't. And then you act like the rest of the world. But when you make those kind of decisions, the world is not going to understand because they don't have the same rules in their game book. Your life would not make sense to them. So I'm a very open person, and so we're about to get really real here, okay? Uh, it's been an odd couple months for me. I've had a, a small handful of encounters um, as a single 24-year-old male with females 
um, who have presented themselves for me to be a regular 24-year-old male with them. And I've responded like a responsible Christian pastor should, right? <laughs> and what I've, what I've noticed is it makes no sense to them, right? I mean, it, it really confuses them. It confuses everyone in this situation. I'm a little confused. We're all just confused. <laughs> and I, I, I was talking to some friends the other day. And I was like, you know what? I'm just, it's just, I'm just not like other 24-year-olds. There's something, it's just different. I'm a, a whole different being. My world does not make sense to them. Their world doesn't make sense to me. And I think it's, it's this question that, that we've got to constantly be asking ourselves. Does someone who doesn't know Jesus, can they make sense of your decisions? Or has knowing Jesus as resurrected Lord completely changed your life? Has changed the way you see the world? And is it slowly but surely changing you, transforming you? Are you reorienting yourself around that fact? So that you talk like Jesus exists. Like he's resurrected and saved you. So that you act with other people like he exists. Like he saved you. So that you treat your body that way. So that you use words that way. And that's, a, I think, a, a, a real question for us. I would wonder what, what it would mean for us individually if, if every day at night we ask ourselves um, whether our decisions that day make sense. According to the gospel, according to the world. I think, honestly, most of us are probably practical atheists. Which means we can talk a good game, but we live like God doesn't exist. We really do. But Saul, he was confronted with the resurrected Christ, and it changed his world. Everything had to be rethought through the lens of Christ and the Spirit. And so he would say later on, look, if, if Christ hasn't been raised, I'm going to be more pitied than anybody I've played my entire life by that rule. If that's not right, then I've kind of lost the whole game here. Most of us, though, I would think, if Christ didn't turn out to exist, if, it's, if this wasn't real, our faith, would be okay. We'd be happy, responsible Americans. I think faith is risking. Faith is going out. So my buddy asked me if, if this thing turned out not to be real, would you be upset with those decisions? Would you want to go back in time and change them? I was like, probably. <laughs> but I'm banking on the fact that, that he has raised. I'm banking on the fact that the world as we know it is a different place. There's new power in town. There's a new Lord. He's met me. He's met us. Does your life make sense outside of the gospel? Saul's doesn't. Paul's doesn't. Is yours? Can someone look at your your pay your paychecks? Can someone look at your bank account? Can someone look at your Twitter feed? Your Facebook? I think those are legitimate questions for us. I want to go back to verse chapter or verse four here in chapter nine. Um, as I read this story, I mean it's a very interesting story. I think most of us are probably familiar with it. This question really just kept ringing in my ears and kind of haunting me. In, in verse four, uh, Jesus shows up to Saul and says, "Saul, Saul." Why are you persecuting me? I think Saul has a point here. I'm not... Who are you? Excuse me. I'm sorry. I've never persecuted the blinding light that knocked me on the butt. <laughs> Jesus... He has this intense solidarity with his people. His people being persecuted. I think there are two truths that we have not taken seriously enough in the church. 
that we have assumed are mere metaphors and thus can be ignored. And I think Jesus' question here confronts us with this reality. So, so maybe two powerful implications of being part of the way, of being those who have encountered the risen Christ and who are now following in faithfulness, would be that one, we are united with Jesus to the point where if you are suffering, Jesus would say, I'm suffering. That's more than a metaphor. Does that make sense? That's a reality. That's a being united with Christ. Where you have a real stake with him. He has a real stake with you. United with Jesus, the second one would be, we are united with each other. We're united with the church. The idea that church is a family is not just a make-believe in our mind. There's actually a new creation, a new family, a new community of believers. And I think one of maybe the best ways for us to approach this kind of thinking is through the imagery of adoption. Um, and so the scriptures will use this occasionally, right? We've been adopted as sons and daughters into God's family. Now, uh, when I was 12 years old, I had a little brother who was born. Uh, and he was a preemie, a uh, very early baby, and I think 19 days in the hospital. We weren't sure if he was going to live or not. Uh, he uh, just wasn't strong enough, didn't have the muscle to really suck or to swallow. Um, and so it was a waiting game there for those 19 days. But I can remember very clearly the first time I held him. In my arms at the hospital. And I remember because for, and I'm, so I'm assuming this will be true for you if you have kids. For me, the closest I've gotten is here with my little brother. But I can remember being overwhelmed and confused by this feeling as I held my little brother in my hands um, of unconditional love and this biological tie to him. Where despite the fact that, that you know, we haven't really had a relationship, pre-existing relationship, despite the fact that he had nothing to offer me, I was his and he was mine. He was a part of my family. He was my brother. You mess with him, you're messing with me. Right? I would die for him. And it was one of the first times I've ever really confronted that feeling. And it was very powerful to me. And as he grew up, man, I was just in love with that kid. The point where he's 12 today. And, and again, I've got to say, he's my brother. I mean, no matter what stupid decision he makes, he's mine. We have, by God's will, been united whether sometimes he likes it or sometimes I like it right we're in a family I take responsibility for him he's not going to be able to disappear off the face of the earth and go make whatever bad decisions he wants to do I hope he doesn't think he can because I will go find him right I'm responsible for him I'm not going to let him do that if he's about to jump off a cliff I'm going to grab him by the shirt and pull him back not today I'm sorry, you're going to deal with this. And then an interesting thing happened in, in, in our family dynamic. A couple of years ago, my parents adopted a little, a little girl, um, and a little Hispanic girl. And it's interesting because I don't live with my parents anymore, and so I don't live with her, and I wasn't very involved in the process. Um, I don't have a lot of emotional attachment to her. I mean, we have, I've really almost no memories with her. Uh, holidays, my seared holidays, give her a hug and things of that nature. Um, and so almost the exact opposite of my brother, whom I have that, that history with, whom we are biologically tied together. But this weird thing happened with my adopted sister. Um, by virtue of someone else's decision, bringing her into the family, even without our emotional tie, without a past, without memories, she's my sister now. Again, whether she likes it or not, she's a part of our family. I'm taking responsibility for her. 
I was thinking about this the other day. God forbid, I hope they don't listen to this, my parents die. Um, but would I, would I take care of my brother and my sister? And the thought crossed my mind, well, it'd be natural for my brother, but then, I mean, it's like, I don't know her. I didn't choose her, things of that nature. And then immediately, like, a larger part of my brain was like, shut up, no. She's yours. Your responsibility now. And as we approach the scriptures, as Jesus asks this question, which I've got to think is ringing in Saul's ears for the rest of his life. I want us to realize that, that when the scriptures say you and I are in Christ, that we're united with him. Maybe we should review that as a, as a parent who's adopted a child. I mean, you should realize that takes a lot of sacrifice on a, on a parent's behalf. Lots of time, lots of energy, lots of money. But they say, look, you are mine. You're now tied together with me. We have been united in a real way where we will be together. We will determine each other's futures. And Christ comes to us and says, those are mine. So Paul, throughout the rest of his letters, as he writes, is going to have this phrase, in Christ. We're in Christ, we're in Christ, we're in Christ. And you've got to imagine this starts here with this question. As Jesus stands with his people and says, why are you, why are you hurting me? And Paul realizes, oh wow, when, when something happens to the believers, it happens to Jesus. They're united. But then... We've got to be careful because we like to individualize everything. In the scriptures, you and I are never individually united to Christ. We're united through the people of God. There's a community. There's a family. Most of us in the Western world view church as Jesus' Facebook friends. Okay? So we're together because we have a mutual friend. I know this Jesus guy. You know this Jesus guy. Maybe we should know him together if we live near each other. But other than that, there's no real tie, right? There's no real tie to it. What we've lost in the scriptures is that not only are we united to Christ, we're united to each other in a same, real, powerful way that I would look at my, my younger sister and say, she's, she's mine. I mean, I'm, I'm responsible for her. I have a stake in her life. She's mine. I think, honestly, that's, that's probably one of the the things that, as I think about our church compared to, to other churches in the area, that our church has to offer, that maybe other churches in Sugarland don't have to offer, is that real community sense. This real strong understanding that, that you and I are not just randomly put together as the church. That family is not just a make-believe metaphor. That we do have a loyalty to each other. We have an allegiance to each other. We have an, a, a responsibility to live life and protect and love each other. So Sam, when, when she was interviewing um, for a video we did for Easter, was talking about the church, and she talked about how um, part of what FCQ meant to her was, was just this understanding um, that you're united with this group of people who you're not family with, biologically connected to you, who some of which you don't have an emotional history with, right? You don't have memories with. But just by being part of the same group, you're united in a powerful way, in a way that would make it be your problems are no longer your problems. And so I remember she saying this, if I don't eat, it's not just I'm not eating. It's not just my problem, it's their problem. If I'm mourning, it's not just my problem, it's their problem. If I'm happy, rejoicing, it's not just my problem, it's their problem. And that's something that a lot of us who have been here at FCU for a while have really experienced. The sense of community. The sense of understanding that we've been united with Jesus, we've been united with each other. And so this morning, um, 
I think that the prayer is, again, conversion is not one of those things I think that happens once. It's something that happens over and over and over again. So every time we see the resurrected Christ, or every time we're encountered with him, every time we're reminded of who he is and what he's done, we're called once again to submit our lives to him. We're called once again to humble ourselves before him and say, what does it mean if you are Lord? What in my life changes or reorients itself around you now? We're called once again to realize and rejoice that we've been united with him. That our fate is linked up to him. It's a beautiful truth. We're called once again to look around us and not see strangers with a mutual friend, but see family members. See people whom we, we love and live life with and are responsible for. We've got a quote in our worship guide by Leslie Newbegin. He says, The church is bound to challenge in the name of the one Lord all the powers, ideologies, myths, assumptions, and worldviews which do not acknowledge him as Lord. There's this sharpness, there's this polemical edge to the claim of Jesus Lord. And then Rowan Williams below it says, The greatness of the great Christians. So, so the great Christians throughout history, the souls of history, their greatness, he says, lies in their readiness to be questioned to be judged, to be stripped naked and left speechless by that which lies at the center of their faith. To be willing to say, if he's Lord, I'm not. If he tells me to go over here, I'm going to go over here. If he tells me to love these people, I'm going to love these people. Why? Well, because because one day I woke up and and realized that that he had resurrected and that things would never be the the same. And so my job is simply to, to try to see the world, to understand reality in light of the one who has died and risen. So this morning, once again, we, we invite each other to see that, to be encountered with that reality and to be further transformed um, into his image and his glory. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you for your scriptures this morning. We, we thank you for um, your work in history. We thank you for the long tradition of faithful followers that we have to look at and to learn about and to take our cues from. Uh, We pray this morning, Father, that you would uh, reveal yourself to us. Um, If we need to be knocked down, you'd knock us down. That if if we need to see very clearly who you are, that you would reveal yourself to us. We pray that we would be able to honestly answer the question of, of whether our lives make sense in light of who you are. Not be afraid of the answer there but to instead simply be encouraged to follow, to repent, to believe. Father, I pray that your spirit would come and fill us up. I pray that your spirit would um, awaken our hearts to who you are, to what you're doing. I pray that your spirit would send us out on mission, like Saul was sent out, Father, that we'd be a light um, to the people around us. We love you. It's in your son's saving name that all of God's people said. Amen. Amen.